Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Thursday, February 27th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. Coronavirus now confirmed in California. A patient outside Sacramento may be the first in the U.S. to be infected by an unknown source. Plus, President Trump puts Vice President Mike Pence in charge of the federal government's response to this growing outbreak. And a new alarm after reports that Immigration and Customs Enforcement is using facial recognition searches on millions of Maryland drivers. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. We begin today with a novel coronavirus fear spreading as new outbreak clusters pop up in different parts of the world. The CDC is now confirming a U.S. patient from Northern California has contracted the illness, making this the first case of community transmission. Let's go to Luis Mejid. He's outside the hospital where that patient is now being treated in Sacramento. Luis, what do you know so far about this individual? Thank you. We are at UC Davis Medical Center right here in Sacramento, where they're taking care of a new coronavirus patient, a patient that could be the first in the U.S. to get the virus through community transmission. What is uh, community transmission? Well, according to the CDC, it is somebody who does not belong to a high-risk group, somebody who has not traveled to China, somebody who hasn't been in contact with a person that traveled to China. Because of that, it took about a week to test for coronavirus. Uh, Presently, the uh, medical protocol is only to test people who are in high-risk groups. Uh, This this wasn't the case here, uh, but that practice may change because of this case in Sacramento. Uh, Health authorities are now in high alert and they're trying to contain new cases. Uh, The patient is a resident of Solano County, uh, very close to Sacramento. Uh, He was transferred from another medical facility. He came here in a ventilator, and according to the hospital, he is now doing pretty well. Uh, As a precaution, the medical center has uh, sent a group of workers home, uh, but the authorities are pretty confident that they have uh, the infection contained. Uh, and they insist that the risk for the population at large remains low. This is all from Sacramento, California. Back to you. Thank you, Luis, for that report. Meanwhile, the White House says the situation is under control and the government is ready to deal with a health crisis, but fear over the coronavirus has markets plunging as they have for most of this week. Lorraine Gassides has the latest details. In Los Angeles, officials trying to track down the places and people visited by an infected Korean Airlines flight attendant that worked international flights in and out of LAX. Disinfecting LAX every hour. Um, We're making sure that those points of entry and those places where we could see somebody come in and create a vector are as secure as we can possibly make. Meanwhile, on the East Coast, at least 83 people are under self-quarantine after being suspected of having contact with someone infected. For 14 days, they will remain isolated. This as the U.S. is up to 60 cases and trouble and discord brews between the White House lawmakers and the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar. The president announcing Wednesday that Vice President Pence would be at the forefront of the coronavirus response. I'm still chairman of the task 
force. So you don't so, feel like you're being replaced? Not in the least. Sources saying the president has expressed privately his frustration with Azar for not keeping him updated enough. The president downplaying the threat of the coronavirus in the United States. Because of all we've done, the risk to the American people remains very low. Despite experts and the CDC warning the threat will only get worse before it gets better. I don't think it's inevitable. I probably will, it possibly will. It could be at a very small level or it could be at a larger level. Whatever happens, we're totally prepared. Lawmakers afraid the president is in denial and the situation can get out of hand. If you compare it to the response to previous situations like this, it's inadequate. And the most dangerous thing is trying to happy talk a, a, a national health emergency because it suits some personal or political goal or because you're worried about the stock market. Since Monday, the Dow has taken a serious hit, making some analysts predict that U.S. companies might not be able to report any revenues for 2020. And at least 11 European countries have confirmed cases of coronavirus, some of which have been traced back to the crisis in Italy. Experts in France are warning authorities to prepare for a local outbreak cluster similar to that country's. Meanwhile, in the Middle East, several officials have been diagnosed with the virus. One of them is currently recovering at home. And in Japan, the cases now stand at more than 900. The government there closing all schools for the time being. Back to you, Andrea. Thank you, Lorraine, for all those latest numbers. Meanwhile, Hawaiian Airlines is suspending flights to South Korea through April. The airline flies five times weekly nonstop from Honolulu to Incheon. Hawaiian Airlines says it is offering reaccommodations on alternative flights or even providing refunds to impacted passengers. JetBlue is also suspending change and cancel fees for all new flights booked between now and March 11th. This only applies to travel through June 1st. As officials in the U.S. are grappling with how to contain the spread of the coronavirus, the question on everyone's mind is whether the U.S. is truly prepared. Let's go to Michael Mina. He's a professor of epidemiology at the Harvard School of Public Health. Thanks so much for joining us today, Professor. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Thank you. At a press conference yesterday, President Trump said the following. I want to go ahead and roll that clip so we can go ahead and hear what he had to say regarding the coronavirus. For this, for anything, whether it's going to be a uh, breakout of larger proportions or whether or not we're, uh, you know, we're at that very low level. Do you agree with the president? Is the U.S. ready to deal with the coronavirus? I don't, in my opinion, I don't think we're totally um, prepared for this. Uh, testing remains um, really sub subpar in, in terms of the numbers of tests that we're able to, to perform across the country and, and the, our ability to really monitor where this virus is spreading is currently very, very limited. So I think in general, that's sort of step number one to being able to be prepared. And, and even there, we're, we're sort of failing at, at this very moment. You mentioned testing, and we all know that early detection for any sort of illness is vital. It's very important. Can you describe how the U.S. is handling testing for coronavirus? Sure. So at the moment, uh, if a patient uh, comes into a hospital and, is, uh, and the, the physicians are concerned uh, that the patient might might be infected with this new virus. 
uh, the, those specimens, a sample has to be taken and it has to be sent at the moment down to the CDC. And that's because our state labs largely don't yet have any capacity to test. Um, but oftentimes we can actually test the patients unless they have sort of very direct uh, contact with either recent travel to China or uh, contact with somebody who's been infected. So uh, in general, we're not even able to test most patients that we would want to. And if we do test them, then the sample goes to the CDC. And usually it's taking uh, two or three or four days to get the results back, which is quite slow. That sounds rather concerning. So what measures do you think officials here should take to contain the spread? We just heard about a case possibly in California that was possibly community transmission. Should we be prepared for quarantines? What would this look like in the U.S.? Yeah, I think we should um, we should be increasing the capacity of laboratories to be able to test for this in the first place, increasing the numbers of, of tests that are available and the numbers of labs approved to perform the test. And then we also have to really be allocating resources. I, I think that Congress should start appropriating uh, extra funds and resources, probably in the billions of dollars, in order to tackle things as simple as being able to uh, uh, sanitize airports and public public spaces much more frequently than usual, uh, and and everything up to being able to really bring in uh, extra supplies into hospitals, make sure that there's enough hospital beds, uh, if only just to 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 keep the people who are under quarantine uh, uh, and give them a place to stay without disrupting hospital workflow. So I think there's going to be a huge number of of different things that need to happen in order to really get the U.S. prepared. And at the moment, very few of those are happening at a national scale. You were talking about hospitals. What kind of equipment or tools are key to treat all these patients? Well, so the, the, the most patients will, be, will have mild infections. And so for those patients, it's going to be key to just keep them away from other people. And if that's in the hospital, then we'll have to ensure that we can keep uh, keep them quarantined, but largely mild patients we can ask to, to go home and be self-quarantined. But we'll also need extra ICU beds. This seems to be at least 5% or so of patients who get into the hospital end up in the ICU. And that's going to be a very large number of, of intensive care unit beds that largely don't exist. So we'll have to try to figure out how to be creative and, and keep people on, on ventilators and that type of um, extra support in the absence of the appropriate numbers of, of true beds that are available. The World Health Organization has not labeled coronavirus a pandemic yet. Do you think that will change anytime soon? I certainly hope so. I think most epidemiologists um, by any metric would consider this, uh, this to be a pandemic. You can see on the map there that there's uh, that very many countries now have uh, at least some cases reported. And this, in, in my opinion and in the opinion of most experts, I think would be considered a, a pandemic. And the choice whether to use that word or not appears to be some, you know, embedded in some policy decisions and, and implications there. And, but uh, this should be referred to as a pandemic quite soon, I think. Well, thank you so much for your time, Harvard Medical School professor Michael Mina. And as doctors many times say, it's very important to wash your hands, soap and water, especially if someone is sneezing or coughing. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. Immigration and privacy activists are sounding the alarm at the use of facial recognition software by Immigration and Customs Enforcement. 
This after it was revealed that officers went through millions of Maryland driver's license photos without state approval. They fear these searches are targeting immigrants who applied for driver's licenses at any point after the year 2013. Janet Rodriguez is in Washington, is in Maryland with more details on this. Janet. In Maryland this afternoon, and the concern is mostly for undocumented immigrants who have been willingly going to the DMV offices across Maryland to get a driver's license here in the state and now could be targeted by ICE officials. In talking to community activists, they're very worried that ICE officers are using this technology without being checked by the state. Now, two bills are being discussed today here in the state legislature to try and stop <coughs> ICE, not necessarily from using the technology, but from from using it only when there is a need, when there is a criminal case that they're investigating and not just to go randomly look for undocumented immigrants who they can go go ahead and then find at their homes or place of uh, employment. And they have uh, here in uh, Maryland uh, already uh, found cases of undocumented immigrants who have been arrested by ICE telling local activists that ICE told them, ICE officers have told them that they were found because of their driver's license information that they willingly uh, gave to the state when they took out their driver's license. Now, the Washington Post reports that there has been over 100 instances where ICE officials have gone into this database. What they do not know is when once they enter the database for how many undocumented immigrants are looking, how much time they spend in the DMV databases, and how much of a uh, database they have been able to create of those undocumented immigrants that are in the system. So it's a big concern here in the community and one that is already being fought at the state legislature level. And there may be a bill and a law that may pass soon here to be able to keep eyes away from those databases. Back to you. Thank you, Janet Rodriguez, for following this story so closely. And moving on now, President Trump scoring a legal victory in his fight against the so-called sanctuary cities. On Wednesday, a Manhattan appeals court ruled his government can withhold millions of dollars in grants to states to force them to work with immigration officials. New York City and seven states refusing to help ICE because of their sanctuary policies for undocumented immigrants. Blanca Rosa Vilches explains. A federal appeals court in New York said the Trump administration can withhold millions of dollars in grants to force states to cooperate with U.S. federal immigration enforcement agencies. These councilmen, like most of local representatives in New York, completely disagrees with the decision because of the number of people who will be affected. If we cut, if the federal government cut funding to the city, the more underserved community are the ones that are the most affected. It's the working class and mostly the immigrants, the undocumented, the Latinos, the, those who are living in an area where unemployment is close to 20 percent. Uh, those are the ones the most affected. And I hope again that the city of New York, working together, we need to be able to put the best legal team to challenge that decision. The decision will allow the federal government to cut fundings to New York City and seven states. Connecticut, New Jersey, Washington, Massachusetts, Virginia and Rhode Island. 
all these jurisdictions sued the U.S. government three years ago after the Justice Department announced that it will withhold grant money from cities and states until they gave federal immigration authorities access to jails and information when undocumented person is about to be released. That's precisely what happened to Merido Castillo's brother, who was deported after five years in a New York prison. My brother was drinking and sentenced to five years in prison, and then he was deported. He didn't get justice, he says. The city says that it will appeal the decision. It is time for us as a city to respond. Since 2006, the government gives $250 million annually for this purpose. The states have already announced that they will appeal the decision. In New York, Blanca Rosa Vilches, U News. A report by the organization Doctors for Human Rights reveals migrant families who are separated after crossing the border experience psychological damage. As Dulce Casellanos explains, according to the United Nations definition, some government actions would amount to torture. The forced separation of migrant families at the southern border constitutes cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment and meets the criteria for torture, according to a new investigation by the nonprofit organization Physicians for Human Rights. Tienen ansiedad, depresión. They will experience anxiety, depression and post-traumatic stress, said this doctor. Based on the psychological evaluations of 26 asylum seekers, including children and adults, the report states they experience severe psychological trauma. In children, this trauma can last the rest of their lives. The report concludes that according to the definition from the United Nations Convention Against Torture, the U.S. government intentionally acted in a manner that caused pain and suffering to punish, coerce and intimidate asylum seekers to abandon their petitions. Adding that family separation was a form of temporary and forced disappearance. More than anything, it's not knowing where your child is. They don't have access to any information and neither do attorneys. Immigrant advocates claim family separations have continued even after a judge halted the actions in June 2018. The investigation is the first to offer medical and psychological evidence into the long-term harm of family separations. Although the analysis only includes a group of migrants, it provides a window into what thousands of immigrant families were exposed to. In Los Angeles, Dulce Castellanos, U News. More of U News after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The Senate will turn itself into a courtroom. The private border fence is being installed. A police officer and three people were killed inside a Jewish supermarket in Jersey City. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. Police in Panama have seized five tons of drugs that were transported aboard a semi-submersible boat. That bust taking place on February 19th and on Wednesday, authorities presenting their haul. 
Officers also arrested four Colombians aboard the homemade device, the first of its kind designed to transport these drugs. And in Colombia, the murder of female human rights activists and community organizers were up nearly 50% in 2019 compared to the year before. This according to the United Nations, that entity urging the Colombian government to continue protection efforts. Violence against so-called social leaders has become a top issue for the country's government, which is the subject of frequent criticism by the international community, non-governmental organizations and activists. Meanwhile, two landslides caused by the rainy season in Colombia have left at least eight dead and more than a dozen injured. The mudslides sweeping away houses and burying victims. However, as Michelle Jurado reports, the rescue of a baby brought some relief and hope in the midst of tragedy. This happened to an entire area in the municipality of Piedecuesta in Santander, Colombia. A mudslide that could have taken the lives of many of the residents after rains overflowed, wiping out everything in its path. In barely three minutes, everything here got flooded. But in the midst of tragedy, this scene gave them a little hope. Nine-month-old Dylan Matias Jaimes was pulled out of a hole by a neighbor when almost everyone thought he was already dead. He was stuck in a hole. His head was full of mud. You could only see his nose and legs. Mario Escota was the one who saved him, saying at the time the only thing we could do was to clear the mud from his face. He was already showing symptoms of fatigue. Their houses were washed away. The baby's mother and his siblings still haven't been found and have been added to the list of 12 missing people from this natural disaster. But that region was not the only region in Colombia that suffered from the severe weather. These images are from Chinchina in Caldas, where five people are dead and an unknown number still missing. Colombian President Ivan Duque expressed his support for the victims, saying, These are tragic things that happen in our country due to climatic circumstances. But I want the community to know that we are with them in these moments of pain. The rainy season doesn't just hit the countryside. This is Bogotá, the country's capital. In the last 24 hours, it hasn't stopped raining and the capital is already feeling its effects. You could say an avalanche The rains left behind fallen trees, mudslides and huge traffic jam. Reporting for Yesid Baquero, I'm Michelle Jurado for U News. Tensions spilling over in Chile as families face off with police to defend against evictions from their camp homes. Take a look at this. About 50 families that inhabited a camp in the city of Temuco were evicted forcibly. This came after authorities in that city informed the families that they did not have authorization to build and reside in that area. Residents at this camp say that they occupied the site after public housing was not made available. And a new rights movement is stirring in Cuba, animal rights. A growing number of Cubans are getting very serious about pushing for animal rights protections in the country. In the past, the subject was often considered unworthy of serious debate against the backdrop of Cuba's geopolitical and socioeconomic challenges. Currently, Cuba is without laws to protect animals. But this week, Cuba's National Assembly said they would present a decree law on animal welfare in November of 2020. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, 
go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.